Okay, we come to Genesis 6, and um, by way of introduction, this will be a bit of a different lesson in terms of content and style than perhaps you've, you've had in the past. And the reason for that is that Genesis 6, 1 through 8 has several very challenging interpretive issues. Um, we'll talk about three of them today. Uh, the three issues that are challenging, and there are reputable commentators on both sides of the fence on term, in terms of the understanding of these passages. Uh, the sons of God, who are they? Um, the scripture references 120 years. What's the significance of the 120 years? And then there's a reference to the Nephilim, and some of your translations may read giants. And we'll talk about whether that's an appropriate translation and what who the Nephilim were. Uh, and again, there are reputable commentators on both sides of some of these issues, but I want to walk through uh, how at least I have processed uh, these passages. Hopefully that, that will be instructive for all of you as well to, to sort of understand the process of working through uh, differences of understanding. But uh, we look at this section in Genesis 6, 1 through 8, and this is a prelude to the flood, uh, which we'll be reading about very shortly in coming weeks. And there were two reasons uh, for the flood. One of them is the, the sins of the sons of God in verses 1 through 4. And then you have on a broader scale the uh, depravity of mankind, the degeneration of mankind, the decline of mankind, the sins of humankind in general in verses 5 through 8. By way of background and in introduction, where we are now is looking at um, what sometimes you will hear the expression antediluvian, A-N-T-E, which means before or preceding, and diluvian refers to the deluge or the flood. So A-N-T-E, diluvian, means those who were prior to the flood. And we're going to be looking at the context, humankind-wise, of what was going on before the flood and why the flood actually took place. Uh, but as we look at this and you see the trajectory of mankind and the ravages of sin, um, the lessons to be learned from this are not unique to the antediluvian period, uh, as some people describe it, Richard Phillips in particular. Uh, it serves as a microcosm for the entirety of world history. Uh, when we look at the dynamics that were at work and ultimately uh, God's judgment upon sin, God's judgment upon uh, rebellion against him. And we, we saw in, after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we see that there were two lines of humanity that developed. You saw uh, Cain and Abel, of course, uh, Cain murdering his brother Abel. Uh, Abel's sacrifice was held in regard by the Lord. Uh, Abel was characterized as righteous uh, by God. Uh, Cain's offering was not re received well by the Lord, but the Lord gave him an opportunity which was rebuffed, uh, rejected, resisted uh, by Cain. Um, and Cain was stalwart in his rebellion against God in choosing to offer a sacrifice that pleased him rather than a sacrifice 
that was commensurate with what uh, the Lord had decreed was acceptable to him, which was a blood sacrifice. Abel offered a sacrifice of the firstlings of the flock, a blood sacrifice. Um, Cain offered uh, some of the produce from the field, and, uh, and ultimately his anger towards God uh, was displaced and manifested in his uh, anger towards his dear brother Abel, whom he murdered in a premeditated fashion. Uh, and then we see two lines that develop. We see an ungodly line through Cain, and then in God's mercy and grace, uh, we see another child being born, uh, Seth, uh, through whom a godly line would be perpetuated. Uh, and so you have two lines. You have an ungodly line through Cain and a godly line through Seth. Uh, a question was raised uh, after one of the lessons, was each and every person in the godly line, um, you know, a, a, an upright person, not necessarily, but the line as a whole is the one that God chose to use to bring forth his Messiah in Genesis 3.15. The promise, of course, after the fall was that God would provide uh, a seed of the woman, a, a child coming forth from the woman who would be bruised, uh, but who would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. And that promise, uh, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel, uh, would not be accomplished through the line of Cain. Uh, it will be accomplished ultimately through the line of Seth, a, a godly line. And so as we come to Genesis 6, we see two cultures very much at work. In Genesis 4, it focused upon the ungodly line of Cain, except for the last two verses in Genesis 4. And there we saw a refreshing note of those who would start to call upon the name of the Lord because the Lord gave Eve a child, a male child, Seth. And then in Genesis 5, we have the continuation of that description of a godly line. And then so you have in Genesis 6, uh, two lines that are existing, two uh, types of humanity that are coexisting with each other. And in Genesis 6, we have an introduction uh, to Noah, uh, the one who would ultimately uh, be rescued from the total devastation of humanity in the created world. Uh, Noah, of course, is going to be pictured in Genesis 6, verse 8 and 9 and following. Uh, we'll get to him, in, Lord willing, a couple of weeks. Um, but that's where we are in terms of, of context. Again, when we look at this passage in Genesis 6, I'm, I'm just going to read the first four verses. Uh, it's a short passage, uh, but it has a number of very difficult issues, but we'll work through those hopefully in a, in a very productive fashion. The, the Word of God says this, Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God, and again the question is who were the sons of God, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. Question, what does that mean, the 120 years? And then in verse 4, the Nephilim, some of your translations may read giants, uh, were on the earth in those days. 
And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now having heard that, if you're scratching your head saying, I'm not sure I understand the sons of God and the Nephilim in 120 years, you're not alone in that. This is, a, this is um, as one commentator said, indisputably uh, the most contested passage in all of Genesis in terms of what does it mean. Having said that, I think the answer is very clear. There are certainly reputable men on different points of view, but uh, as we unpack this by God's help, uh, I'm very comfortable with the conclusions that I'll be sharing with you, and I, I want to help you understand how I arrived at those conclusions. So it'll be a little bit of a workshop in how to deal with passages where there are different understandings. So hopefully it will be instructive in that way. But when we look at this, this antediluvian culture, this primeval culture, what we're reading about in the first several verses of Genesis 6 are three things that are happening. One is that marriage and family life was literally demonized. Uh, number two, um, that life was shortened or judgment is imminent. So depending on how we look at this 120 years in verse 3, either life is shortened, which is not my understanding, or judgment is imminent, which is the way that I take this passage. And three, that violence is idolized. So when we look at this, marriage is demonized. You'll, you'll notice, and this is one of the commentators makes this point, and I agree with it, uh, the story opens with what all agree is the most debated text in Genesis. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. So you remember, as I pointed out just a moment ago, that in Genesis 4, that you saw this ungodly line uh, through Cain uh, in verses 17 through 22. And then at the end of chapter 4, you see Seth being introduced, and men begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in chapter 5 is about the, the godly line. So what do we make of these sons of God? And uh, I'm going to work through this with you, but just for your own reference, as part of your notes toward the end of the handout that you have, uh, which is 18 pages long, there's actually a fairly long discussion of the two views. The two views are, uh, number one, <clears throat> that the sons of God uh, were uh, the, the, uh, those who human beings who were uh, powerful individuals uh, or ungodly individuals, and they saw, could be both, could be ungodly and powerful, uh, and they saw these women and they were attracted to them uh, because of their physical beauty and there was no regard for um, the fear of God or uh, being joined equally and they were unequally yoked, which of course gives rise to um, ungodly unions and, uh, and so that's one view, that it's strictly human. Uh, the other view is that the sons of God uh, were angels, and specifically fallen angels or demons. That's the view that I'm, I'm going to take, but I'll, I'll tell you why I take that point of view. So when we look at the, the New Testament, uh, we see a number of passages that specifically tie angels uh, with the flood. 
And, and you're going to need to follow along in your text for this to, to make sense. So turn in your scriptures to 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20. And this is a difficult passage as well, but it, it does come together when we look at everything in context. The principle that we'll be using here is what's called the analogy of scripture. That scripture interprets scripture. So when we look at uh, a, a difficult passage... Uh, such as we see in Genesis 6, verse 2. And we begin to look at the usage of certain words, and we look at uh, other passages, for instance, in the New Testament. There's three of them in particular that we'll look at. Uh, Again, it's called the analogy of Scripture, and it's a very time-tested and faithful biblical approach to understanding the Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20 refers to Christ going and making proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And you could be looking at this passage and saying, that's a somewhat mysterious passage. It's actually, it becomes very clear when we understand what took place. What took place literally were fallen angels who came and ultimately um, commandeered the souls of humans. We would call that in today's world demon possession. And those human beings uh, cohabited, mated with women, and they had progeny, children that came from that union. And if that seems like a really bizarre situation, it is. But that's what the scripture is describing. And when we're looking at 1 Peter 3, uh, 19 and 20, uh, Peter is describing the Lord Jesus uh, preaching or proclaiming to the saints in prison. Uh, and so this is, this is not hell. This is Tartarus. This is a, uh, a place of confinement for certain fallen angels. Uh, the nature of these fallen angels is that they were disobedient. Uh, and you'll see that the context of this Uh, very clearly links with the antediluvian period, the period immediately preceding the flood. Because in verse 20, Peter says, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So the time frame that is being described in 1 Peter 3 is that episode immediately preceding the flood. That's exactly what's being described in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. Another passage that coincides with this is in um, 2 Peter uh, chapter 2. So flip over in your scripture to 2 Peter 2. And there's a number of observations that can be made here. Specifically, we'll look at verses 4, 5, and 9. But this entire section uh, in 2 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10 deals with uh, two things. It deals with the character of God his holiness, his judgment against evil, uh, the certainty that God does always exact justice against evil, and he also knows how to deliver the righteous. Those, both, those truths are both clearly articulated here. And in verse 4, for if, uh, and that's not an if perhaps, it's since uh, God did not spare angels when they sinned. He did not spare them. But he, what did he do? He cast them into hell. And again, this isn't the hell in terms of the lake of fire. Uh, this is a, a place of confinement uh, preceding that ultimate judgment. 
and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. This is precisely what is being described in 1 Peter 3. And did not spare the ancient world, and he didn't in Genesis 6 and following, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, his immediate household, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And it goes on in verse 6, upon if, and in other words, since he condemned Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, reducing them to ashes, and if he rescued righteous Lot, verse 7, and he did, uh, and then verse 8, uh, for, uh, uh, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day. Then, verse 9, then, so if God judges sin, and he judges unrighteousness and evil, and he does, the counterpart of that is in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly, from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And it's the, it, what we see here is two, are two principles that are very clear. One, that God does always judge the unrighteous. That is absolutely certain that it will take place. And God does preserve the godly, uh, and he preserves them uh, from judgment. Uh, but there is a time of punishment, and you see this reference to the confinement of angels uh, and especially those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires and despise authority. That's exactly what's taking place uh, in 1 Peter 3 and in Genesis 6. A third passage is in the little book of Jude. You may remember we've been to Jude earlier when we looked at Jude 14 and 15, and we looked at the prophecy of Enoch. Uh, we, we covered that in a previous week. Uh, but if you look at... Pages are stuck. There we go. Jude 6. Let me start in verse 5. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, out of, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, in verse 6, and angels who did not keep their own domain. Who are the angels who did not keep their own domain? The same angels that are being described in 1 Peter 3, the same angels that are being described in 2 Peter 2, verses 4, 5, and 9, but abandoned their proper abode. He has what kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So you have three passages in the New Testament that all describe the same situation, and it coincides precisely with what is taking place in Genesis 6. You have a, an angelic rebellion uh, in terms of an invasion, if I can use that term, upon planet Earth, uh, where they are commandeering the souls of certain men, and those men are cohabiting with women. The nature of the unions that are created by that uh, is that they, they saw, and commentators uh, frequently will say it's the same dynamic that took place in the garden when Eve saw the fruit, that it was attractive, and she took that which she was not supposed to have taken and sinned against God. Here we have angels saw the women and they were attracted to the same thing. They're attracted and they're doing exactly what they should not do. Uh, they're transgressing the law of God and, and engaging. And of course, some people will, rep, will struggle with this and they say, well, I didn't know that angels uh, could procreate. Angels cannot procreate. Um, and you'll see that in Luke, uh, Gospel of Luke, but in Mark 12, verse 25, uh, the, the scripture very clearly says that they do not marry, or, nor are they given and married. That does not mean 
that they cannot engage in possessing unsaved people. Do demons possess believers? Demons do not possess believers. Uh, do demons possess unbelievers? They can and they have, and the Gospels have a number of instances that we could trace where there have been demon-possessed men, and they show the fruit of that evil possession in their conduct and the bondage that they had and the devastation that came into their lives. Uh, and so this doesn't say that the angels per se uh, engaged in sexual relations, but it does uh, certainly allow for the proposition that angels took control of certain unbelievers and the unbelievers engaged in cohabitation with certain women and produced a progeny uh, from that. And it was a, a, essentially a corruption of marriage. It was a corruption of culture. Now, you look at that and you might say, that's, that's a really bizarre situation. It is. Uh, but when we look at the term sons of God, um, it can mean, and the, and the notes will indicate this to you, that it can mean that the children of God, uh, but the normative use of sons of God refers to angels. Uh, and there's a number of passages that we can look at. If you go back, for instance, to Job chapter 1, verse 6, it's a very interesting passage in Job chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God, same expression that you see in Genesis 6, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Now, when it says that they came to present themselves before the Lord, there is a clear indication, there's a sense of accountability. They're giving an account for themselves. And if you look at uh, who's among them, who's among them, Satan himself is among them. So the company that's being kept here are not righteous angels. Uh, it, you've got Satan mixing it up with other angels in the scripture, the sons of God. These are angels. These are not children of God. These are not human beings, but these are angels that came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came among them also. And then if you flip over the next page, chapter 2, verse 1, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Same expression that you saw in chapter 1, verse 6. And Satan also came among them to present themselves before the Lord. Uh, and so you have, I think it's a reasonable inference that the sons of God here, number one, they're clearly angelic. They're not human and secondly, by virtue of who's keeping company with whom, you've got Satan keeping company with these other sons of God. And I think it would be realistic to say, or reasonable to say, that the angels that are being presented in an accountable fashion are the fallen angels, demons. A number of observations that we can draw from this. Number one, we should always remember that all of God's creation is under his sovereign control, that angels cannot do anything that God does not permit them to do. Satan himself, of course, uh, made a number of accusations about Job, uh, a, a man of God, and said, Job only favors you because you blessed him. Uh, but if you take away his bounty, he will curse you. Uh, and God gave permission to Satan to do some devastating things to the life of Job, but it was only what God permitted. Satan was not given in uh, unlimited access or permission to do anything that God uh, would not permit. 
And ultimately, of course, Job was vindicated. Job was restored at the end of this narrative. It's a historical narrative. It's an ancient narrative. Uh, and, but all of this um, the difficulty that Job experienced was precisely what God in his sovereign control said. They're always on a leash, if I can use that expression. So you've got these sons of God presenting themselves, Satan presenting themselves before him as well. It's the same expression that you have in Genesis 6. And what's interesting is I think it's reasonable to believe that the sons of God in Job 1 are fallen angels. And then if you look at 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, Jude 6, in each case, what you're reading about are angels who did not keep their proper role, uh, but they transgressed against God, number one. And what did God do? He confined them. He judged them for an ultimate time, a final judgment, but they're in a period of confinement. Uh, but it refers to a, an episode in, in, in Peter's epistles that specifically links this time of rebellion to that time period, which was immediately preceding the flood. So when we look at Genesis 6, 2, and we see that the sons of God saw the daughters of men and took whomever they wished, uh, and, and ultimately there are children that come from this, um, the reason that I look at this and say what's being described, and, and by the way, this is a, an old interpretation. It's, it's the interpretation that the earliest Jewish uh, exegetes adopted. It's the interpretation that the early church fathers adopted, which doesn't necessarily make it right, uh, but it certainly lends some degree of credibility to this. So again, what are we doing? We're looking at scripture, interpreting scripture. We're looking at a very difficult passage and we're saying, what does this mean? And so we begin to look at, at corresponding passages using the principle of analogy of scripture, comparing scripture with scripture. And we're seeing New Testament accounts that precisely describe, number one, the time frame that fits Genesis 6, and secondly, the angelic behavior that is commensurate with what is described with the sons of God. So that's why uh, I would take this particular point of view. So you've got this uh, being described for you uh, in pages one and two. So if you flip over to page three, um, top of three, there, there's, I'll just read this for you. Therefore, understanding that the sons of God are angels, here in Genesis six, fallen angels, and also understanding that angels are sexless and cannot marry or procreate. Luke 20 describes that. Mark 12, verse, uh, verse 25, also a parallel passage says that. Then what we must have here in Genesis 6, 2, are the sons of God marrying the daughters of man, the fallen angels commandeering the souls of men, demon possession, and these demonized men marrying the daughters of other men, uh, it's the same wicked angels whom Peter and Jude reference as being imprisoned at the time of the flood and kept in dungeons for ultimate judgment. The question is, if you're scratching your head and you're saying, this doesn't sound believable, it is believable. It, there's no reason not to believe it. Uh, Gordon Wenham, a very noted and, and respected Old Testament scholar, says this, if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects, that reflects a materialism Materialism is that view that we can only accept and endorse that which we can physically observe and measure. Uh, it's, it's basically a reflection of living in a world where the supernatural is not regarded as credible. Uh, then to, if we find it incredible, then that reflects a materialistic mindset that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or bad. 
but those who believe that the Creator could unite Himself to human nature in the Virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. That makes perfect sense. That makes absolute sense. I would just simply note that one of the very important takeaways of this passage uh, in Genesis 6, and I've got, if you go in your notes, not right now, but on page 12 and following, uh, there are um, some good articles that I've reproduced for you that deal with what are the takeaways in terms of our Christian lives today. And one of the takeaways, one of the applications is that I think we tend to give uh, inadequate attention and respect to the very real nature of spiritual warfare. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said that we can err on two different ways. One of them is that we can see Satan as some type of comical figure in a red, red suit, etc. You know, that's the way if you look at, at common literature, it, it minimizes Satan by caricaturing. He loves that. He absolutely loves it when we turn him into a comical figure because it, it, it sort of dehorns him, so to speak, and it makes people th- not to fear him. The other extreme, of course, is to see uh, uh, satanic warfare in every aspect of life. Uh, and, but the reality is that satanic warfare, uh, spiritual warfare, is entirely real. And that's why Paul in Ephesians 6 reminds us uh, that we are to take up the armor of God and to stand firm. Uh, that's why Peter says in 1 Peter uh, that the, the, the devil uh, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Not just oppress, make difficult, but, uh, but devour. Uh, and so I think we tend in many cases to uh, avoid accepting the fact that there is spiritual warfare that is very, very real. Um, and, and so that's one of the takeaways. If it existed in Genesis 6, it exists today. Uh, does that mean that men and women can be possessed? Absolutely, they were possessed. They can be possessed today. Uh, when you look at even human history, it's impossible for me to believe that Adolf Hitler was anything other than a demon-possessed man. Uh, Mussolini, other uh, ravaging leaders of that nature, and perhaps even some that we maybe know about today, uh, there's no question that the enemy prowls about like a roaring lion. There's no question that uh, there are demon-possessed men and women uh, among us and have been through history. Uh, so we need to take that into account. We need to realize that it, it's not uh, comical, uh, it's not sensationalistic, it's entirely real. The scripture very specifically tells us to accept that and to be prepared for that, to be uh, more prepared to stand firm against the wiles of the devil. So that's one of the very real um, explanations of what uh, this account is about. So then the second uh, dimension, so we just dealt with one of the difficult issues is who are the sons of God? The answer that I believe is very, very compelling. I think it's incontestable, to be honest, even though there are others who would disagree, is that these were uh, fallen angels who possessed uh, men who engaged in cohabiting with women and had children as a result of those unions. To me, that is entirely reasonable, and it's consistent with the New Testament commentary. So the second question is this aspect of the 120 years, and it's now on page 3. The scripture says in verse 3 of Genesis 6, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. There are two views on this as well. And again, this is a different 
type of lesson than you typically will get from me, but I'm wanting to walk through why, uh, how we can take these difficult passages and look at different understandings and come to, an under, come to a conclusion about what it means. Um, the view that is presented for you on page three is that this was a truncation or shortening of human lifespans. I don't believe that's accurate, but, it, but there are, uh, Kent Hughes, for instance, is making this point here on page three, uh, that what you're reading about is lifespans are being reduced because you just read about Methuselah 900 years, Adam lived 930 years, etc. And after this, you don't see people generally living 900 years. The problem is, top of page four, that the same author says this is problematic. That's an understatement because Noah and many of his descendants lived hundreds of years. In Genesis 11, Abraham lived to be 175, Isaac 180, Jacob 147. So he comes to this conclusion that it may simply be that 120 years was gradually implemented. To me, that's, that if God says his days will be 120 years, that means his days will be 120 years. It doesn't mean that it will be gradually truncated to a level that's commensurate with 120 years. I'm not trying to caricature a respected commentator. I'm just saying that, that even he recognizes that this is a somewhat implausible interpretation. So what is the meaning of this? Number two, J.G. Voss, who's a, a good reform commentator, um, says this, once this program of mixed marriages was underway, uh, and, uh, he, he references the church here. Uh, understand he's not disparaging Israel. He's not uh, commandeering Israel. He just, uh, the reform people would look at the church as the continuity of God's people throughout time. So, so please don't, don't find an exception there. But it would only be a matter of time until the, the God's people, if I can use that expression, would be completely merged with the world. Uh, the Sethites would lose their identity uh, and distinctive character and would be merged with the Canaanites in a wicked and godless race. And that's exactly what took place. There was this uh, collaboration of the godly and the ungodly. And at the beginning of this period, and this is why we took some time to talk about the fact there were two lines of humanity, there were two great branches of line. There was Seth's line and there was Cain's line. You had a godly line and an ungodly line. But as we'll see when we get to verse 5 of Genesis 6, uh, at the end of this period, uh, that none remain godly except for the family of Noah and his sons. Uh, so the, the, the godly line had suffered greatly uh, because of, of compromise over time. Uh, and so we see this in verse 3. Uh, he goes on to make the, the point that when we look at 120 years uh, down at the bottom of the page, some scholars have held that the reference to 120 years means that the ordinary span of human life would be reduced to 120 years. He says this interpretation is improbable, the same conclusion that Kent Hughes came up with. Um, but if you go over to page 5, he says, as a matter of fact, people live longer than 120 years even after the flood. We believe the correct interpretation is that divine judgment in the form of the flood would come 120 years after God made this statement. That's, the, that's absolutely the, what, what took place. What God is saying is that with the degradation of culture, that his patience was running out. That, that judgment was literally around the corner, so to speak. And he warned Noah that in 120 years the flood would come. You remember the last time we looked at Methuselah, what happened? He died the year of the flood. Uh, the, his name means he was named when he dies it shall come. And there was a sense of imminence to judgment that would be forthcoming. 
and Noah received even greater specificity as to the nature of that judgment. Enoch said that there would be judgment, but there was not the degree of specificity that was given to Noah. Noah said there's going to be a flood. He was building an ark in the middle of a desert, which was a, a very strange experience for him to be doing. But in perfect obedience to the will of God, he built a wonderful structure that God had ordained because God would very shortly be bringing forth a deluge to destroy all of life, with the exception of those who had refuge in the ark. And Noah received notice, literally within 120 years, it's game over. So get, get, get working on the flood, or on the, on the ark, because the flood will be forthcoming. The third issue that we run into is, is in, back to Genesis 6, in some of the translations it describes them as giants. The, the word is Nephilim, and um, the reason that some of your translations will use the word giants, the King James uses that in that translation, some of them do as well. There's only two passages in the scripture that use this expression, in Genesis 6 and in Numbers 13, verse 33. In Numbers 13, verse 33, uh, you have the episode where the Israelites went into the Promised Land and they saw the Anakim, the sons of Anak, and they were big guys. They were, I say they must have been the NBA players of ancient times. They were big guys. Um, but that doesn't mean that they were demonic. It doesn't mean that they were the fruit of some angelic cohabitation. Keep in mind, by the way, that whoever the Nephilim were in Genesis 6 are not the same people in, Gen in Numbers 13. Why? Because they were all destroyed in the flood. All of the Nephilim of Genesis 6 were completely destroyed. The only humans who, who remained on earth were Noah and his immediate family. So you have no continuity between Genesis 6 and Numbers 13 other than the fact that the same word is used. The same word, Nephilim doesn't mean giants, it means fallen ones. It comes from a verb which means to fall. So people will look at the passage in Numbers 13 uh, where it says, we looked at these sons of Anak, the Anakim, uh, and we were as grasshoppers before them because they were big guys. And they'll read that back into Genesis 6, and they'll say, well, if, Gen if Numbers 13 says that they were big guys, they were giants, then that must mean that the same word in Genesis 6 means giants. That's not a necessary conclusion. All it means is that they were fallen. So who were the Anakim, or pardon me, the Nephilim? Again, the word doesn't mean giants, it means fallen ones. Uh, so there's different points of view here as well. Uh, and the, the first interpretation is that the Nephilim were the offspring of demonized marriages. Uh, just in the interest of time, I won't unpack this in great detail. I think I can dismiss this fairly quickly by simply saying that if that were the case, there would be none of them living after Genesis 6. Because in Genesis 6, the, all of the humanity on planet Earth was destroyed without exception. The only people who lived after the flood were Noah and his immediate family. So whoever the, 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 the Nephilim were in Genesis 6 cannot possibly be the same people who were in Numbers 13. You, you can see the argument there. They, they don't exist anymore. They're gone. They've been exterminated. So there's no continuity between Genesis 6 and Numbers 13. So just in the interest of time, I'm just giving you sort of an, what I've been working through over the last week in looking at three uh, very difficult passages. Who are these sons of God? What does the 120 years mean? And who are the Nephilim? And, and these are passages that I know you've read these. I, I've looked at these for years and I've said, who are these Nephilim? Who are these, 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 these giants? 
the, the interpretation uh, that is, is most plausible is on page 6. Um, and they were mighty men, they were corrupt men. That's exactly what the scripture says in Genesis 6, 6 that they were mighty men and they were men of renown. Um, second paragraph on Genesis, uh, page 6, pardon me. It is Genesis 6, but I'm on page 6. Some interpreters see the Nephilim as the offspring of angels and women. Uh, that can't possibly be the case. Uh, because in, in, in Numbers 13, you, you've got the same word that's used, and, and all those people were gone. Uh, the text merely states that the Nephilim were on the earth at the same time. Uh, the word Nephilim means fallen ones. And then I'm, I went through this discussion with you earlier about Numbers 13. The, the people who were described in Numbers 13, um, such as Goliath, whom David slew, were the mighty men of the antediluvian period, the men of renown. So um, he goes on to say that the word translated giants uh, is a word, and I've just worked work to that with you with, uh, with Numbers 13. So why, why am I doing this? I'm, I'm, I'm giving you sort of an insight into um, a passage that I've been working through for the last week, and it's only four verses long, but there's already three interpretive issues of some consequence with different people interpreting these passages. Number one, the sons of God, the 120 years, and the Nephilim. And you'll read commentators um, on different points of view. And the question is, how do I resolve these differences? How do I study this uh, in such a way that I can have clarity? And the answer to that is compare Scripture with Scripture. When you look at sons of God in Genesis 6, you have to look at 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 2, and Jude 6. When you look at the 120 years, you have to say, well... Does 120 years mean that the lifespan was reduced? Well, if you look at the period subsequent to the flood and you see lifespans uh, substantially longer than 120 years, then that can't be a plausible explanation. So what does it mean? You go back to Enoch and the judgment that was given, uh, prophesied, and you look at the, the lifespan of Methuselah and you look at the fact that there was a very specific time frame that God had ordained for wiping out humanity because of his anger and wrath towards the sin that was rampant on planet Earth. And you say it must mean that there was a time period that was given to Noah that the clock is running. And 120 years to us doesn't, it seems like an incredibly long time. Uh, but that's, that's the amount of time that Noah preached righteousness in a fallen world and actually constructed this marvelous vehicle through whom humanity was ultimately preserved and the Messiah would ultimately come. And when we look at this definition of Nephilim, uh, we have to look at Numbers 13, we have to look at Genesis 6 and say, is there any continuity? The answer is there's no continuity between Numbers 13 and Genesis 6. It's just the same word is used. So we can't make a link that these are necessarily uh, the results of some uh, angelic cohabitation with women. It just means they were big guys. It means that they were men of renown. Uh, it means that they were mighty men, that they were in a special class of, um, of humanity that was particularly evil, which of course fits exactly with what described in Genesis 6 verse 5, that God looked at the fallenness of man and he was sorry that he'd made man. So the issue that we'll deal with next week is, is a theological issue because the scripture says that it, God repented. What does it mean that God repented? Come next week and we'll work through that. Uh, it's, it's a very important subject. Uh, it's, it's not a trivial subject, but there's a very straightforward answer. What does it mean that God repented? Um, I'll just simply say this. If you want to see a corollary of that, look at 1 Samuel 15 uh, with Saul. 
and you'll see a, 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 a parallel uh, there to what's described in Genesis 6. So today was a little different. I, I wanted to use this as a bit of a workshop to say how do we work through the scriptures? How do we compare one passage with another uh, and to determine an appropriate understanding of some of these very cryptic passages? Sons of God, 120 years, Nephilim, are they giants? Are they, what are they? And, and hopefully this has been you know, a bit of a tutorial for you and so that how you can work through some of these sections.